I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart sensitive people into liars thieves gluttons and whores liars and thieves and gluttons and whores oh liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And every week I'm here giving you episodes that include guest interviews. Many of the episodes are hosted with my brother, Bob, and also experts in the field of addiction. With my brother, we have a combined sobriety of over 85 years. And I believe my guest today and I have combined sobriety of over 80 years. So please welcome with me, Howland Bickerstaff. Howdy, folks. Great to be here. Good to so, see you again, Nancy. I'm so yeah. excited. <laughs> it's so great. I haven't talked to Howland in years, and we used to work together. We worked together for over a decade, um, seeing each other every day. I think I saw you more than anyone I was in partnership with, or even more than I saw my son. Um, well, and, and how long did we co-facilitate intensive outpatient together? Uh, you know, I mean, I worked for Mercy for 13 years. You worked And I there worked for... Um, She's almost 20. I think it was 19 yeah. coming up on 19 years and nine months or something like that. So yeah. I, I think it really is like a dozen years that we wow. worked side by side. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we those are well. over those over that period of time, you learn to complement each other and you learn to know, you know, what works with both of you. And where each other's strengths are and to enhance those and hopefully help clients better. So, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I know it's kind of sounds like a braggart, but I think we did a really bang up good job. I think we did, too. I think we did quite well. I know that uh, when I did family day on um, every fourth Saturday or so, used to get good comments about that and, that you know, people really enjoyed it. And, and um I always enjoyed that too, because I loved watching. I loved watching how they said, you know, this is, I've, I've been to, you know, other treatment centers. I've been to Betty Ford. I've been to Hazelden or I've done this or I've done that. And you in your hour and a half or two hour lecture at Mercy 
gave me more understanding in that time than I got in four or five days at those other places, you know, cause you really, cause I would give people facts and then I would back them up with true stories that where the names were changed to protect the innocent, you know? So, um, and that made it real. It made it, it brought it home for people. So, and you were good at it too. You had a great family day. So. You know, what I love remembering from my own family day when I did a, a family roles, kind of the roles that we play within a family and we, we would put it together like a psychodrama. So they weren't members of the same family, but with a compilation of people there for family day, we'd create a family and they all like, you know, they'd all say the same thing. Like the, uh, the person in the role of enabler would say, don't you think you've had enough to drink? And I hear the whole, you know, 70 people just sigh like, Oh, Uh, oh, crap. You know? Um, And what I remember though, from that is um, a couple of people, when I was traveling, one time I was on one of those uh, like shuttle buses from a hotel parking lot to uh, Logan in Boston Mm-hmm. And a woman said, I know you. I came I to you. family day for my sister and she's still sober and it's you were wonderful. You know, and I'm like, those are the things um, a time when I was flying out of Portland and I was with my son and he was pretty young. And this man came up to me and said, your mother is like my, you know, like your mother's special friend, because he knew that I'd have a sponsor. You know? <laughs> 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 and just the way he explained it to my son, it was like, that's great. You know, just wonderful when sobriety reaches across the globe. And Oh, yeah. Well, that too. I mean, my, my stint, although very brief, down in Antigua at Crossroads Center, you know, the treatment center that Eric Clapton built was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had so you know i was really wondering i was hoping that you would mention that today because i was thinking about you know celebrities that uh, don't necessarily keep their sobriety um confidential or anonymous you know and eric clapton doing a treatment center this kind of like this whole idea of passing it forward and um paying it forward and I wonder, because our show is about the dark side and the light side, like, was that one of your brightest, lightest moments in recovery to be able to be down on Antigua? It's actually pronounced Antigua. Antigua. Thank you. Yeah, that's okay. Um, It was a brighter moment for me because I was hired kind of as a consultant to help shift the paradigm from the circle of shame they used to do in group therapy to more motivational interviewing where you're aligned with people and you're able to, to say, so, so tell me about when the person comes in and goes, I'm not here for alcohol. I'm here for depression. And so the other therapist is about to say, well, it says on your assessment, you're a drunk, you know, and I'm just saying, wait, wait, tell me about your depression, you know, and you'd move through that and then you'd say so i'd imagine you might use a couple of things to alleviate your depression and the lead into like yes well i drank and you know so what's the best case scenario and worst case scenario and then to say well i'm not saying whether you are or you're not but let me give you some information about this illness and you know you can in the meantime we'll focus on your depression how's that with you you know guy would say that's fine and 
two or three days later, he'd come in with the article that he was given and he'd go, I'm a friggin' alcoholic. <laughs> but, you know, he would come to his own conclusion or she would come to her own conclusion. And it was a much, it's, it was just such a wonderful way to help shift that paradigm. And they're totally into MI now, motivational interviewing. And, um, and they do marvelous job with group therapy and psychoeducation and all of that and getting to meet himself, you know, well, getting you getting to meet Eric Clapton. Yes. And and that's especially wonderful for you because you're a musician. Right. And um, he is one of my fave, fave, fave guitar players of all time. And it turns out that he purchased a signature Martin guitar, the Eric Clapton signature model. Martin triple O 28 is the model. And um, it was falling apart. And I fixed it. I repaired it. Um, and I was able to tell Eric, oh, by the way, your guitar was falling apart and I fixed it. He said, what did you do with it? And I went through all the details about how I fixed it. And he said, I had no idea. Thank you. you know? <laughs> so we had a wonderful conversation about that. And I met his wife and um, I went down there for his 25th anniversary of sobriety to you know, celebrate that. And then I went down for the 20th anniversary of Crossroads two years later. And um, she recognized me and she said, well, I certainly don't remember your name, but I know that you used to work here and it's really good to see you again. And she came over and gave me a huge hug and, you know, and I saw Eric again and, um, and we were able to, you know, chat briefly and, and, uh, I brought him some extra bridge pins and strings for the guitar, et cetera, et cetera. And he's thank you. And he gave them to an assistant, you know, but it was just, it was a really, it was a highlight is the best thing I can say. So I didn't mean to be that long with the answer but oh but, no 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 that's that's great and i i love because it's not only that i met the man but you shook hands with the man and you fixed his guitar yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um helen what was the going back into your own life and your own story um what was the darkest moment or maybe the pinnacle moment that got you to say the gig's up um, 1981 played a Halloween party in a warehouse in the South end in Boston. There were 900 people there. My tolerance was already so high that I was drinking half a gallon of vodka a day. Um, I probably snorted close to a you know quarter to a third of an ounce of cocaine, drank that half gallon of vodka and about 17 or 18 keg beers. By then I was throwing up blood, urinating blood and defecating blood. I was late stage and I'm looking at the, um, the day after that, somehow I survived that, but I was still playing and walking and talking like I am now because I could not end the pain. I just couldn't end the pain. And so the surrender came when I was looking at the blood in the toilet on November 1st in my apartment, I'm in a fifth floor walk up in Boston on Beacon Hill. I'm alone. There's nobody else there. And I'm facing eviction in about a month. And, um, and I'm looking at the blood in the toilet and drenched in sweat. And I'm just weeping and I'm saying, I can't do this anymore. And then here's the part that I can't understand. This is kind of what I call that woo woo shit. You know, it's like the, it's like, it was my father's voice that I heard. Now he killed himself when I was 15. So he was already gone. Right. But it was his voice that I heard. And he, he said, it's not your time to go yet. Get help now. And the part that I could not explain and still can't to this day 
which tells me that there are guardian angels, is that I was literally picked up underneath my arms and brought to a standing position, pushed out of the bathroom, turned to the right and pushed over to the telephone in the living room. And the phone book opened directly to the A's. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I can't explain that. I was alone in that apartment. And I can't explain being lifted up and being pushed out into the living room. But I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in tears. They said, give us your number. We'll find out. They asked how much I had been consuming and all that other stuff. And they said, we'll call you back within the hour. And they called me back in 10 minutes and said, there's a bed at Kenmore Detox. It's part of the Salvation Army across from Fenway Park on Brookline Avenue, just outside of Kenmore Square. How soon can you get there? And I said, yesterday. And I called the roadie in my band, a guy named Bruce Driscoll, who is one of the most gentle souls on the planet. And I said, Bruce, I need a ride. Can you help me out? And he said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. He was there in 15. We kidnapped my sister because she was down at a pub called the Sevens, which is 77 Charles Street was the address down at the bottom of the hill. Kidnapped her and brought her along and uh, got to Kenmore Detox. And the nurse took my blood pressure and her eyes bugged out. And she said, holy shit, we got to get you down. You can stroke out here. And so they gave me some medication. And I woke up about 36 hours later and my sister, God bless her, had left me a carton of Camel non-filters because I was still smoking then. And um, my favorite science fiction anthology. And I stayed there for five days. And, um, and it was much needed because um, I was that far gone. I mean, I was late stage. And the nurse, as I'm leaving, gave me a swift kick in the ass and said, good luck, kid. Hit 90 and 90. We don't want to see your ass back here again. And I said, you won't. And I hit 180 meetings in 90 days. I had what they commonly call in 12-step fellowships, the gift of desperation. Mm -hmm. And I went, you know, I went to two meetings a day. And my sponsor said, after six months, well, you're doing so well with that. Why don't you go to two more a day for the next six months? Of course, it's a day at a time, you know, but so I did. So I went literally to 360, you know, 720 plus meetings a day, you know, in the first year. Um, and um, I think that's probably what saved my life. And I didn't work the steps for a while. So that was another thing that got my knickers in a knot because, you know, um, you go crazy if you don't start actually doing the spiritual journey that they talk about, which is, you know, you got to work on yourself, you know, the, and the whole God thing got me for a while because I had a history of abuse as a child and, you know, we can go into that if need be, but um, I was, well, it, it's not about need be right. It, it's your choice, whether you go into your childhood abuse or not. I, I really loved hearing such a positive message about your dad's voice yeah. at that pinnacle moment, because I'd known as I know you quite well, but I hadn't heard that part of your story. I'd known that your dad killed himself. Um, I know how deeply that imprinted in your life and has affected you. I didn't really know that more angelical side of the story that he yeah. or his spirit lifted you up and directed you to AA and the willingness to go to detox. Cause you and I know how many people are 
down and out and really need it and don't, you know, when given the opportunity, don't seize the moment, don't go. And then it's the that woman- thing that they talk about, you know, in the back of AA's big book, the the second the appendix two word, that last little paragraph about contempt prior to investigation, which mm-hmm. is, you know, knocking it before you've even tried it. Thank God I didn't have that resistance, you know, because I'd been to AA once or twice before, but I thought, man, eh, I don't know about that. Because I you know, really I didn't I wasn't I wasn't really quote powerless yet enough, nor was my life unmanageable enough to where I could, you know, finally get Oh to yeah. That so place. listeners, just dial that back. You know, go listen to the beginning when Helen was talking about being in this um apartment that he was gonna be evicted from in about a month. And um, how much you were drinking with the vodka and the beer that night that you were um, playing a, a gig and doing cocaine, but you really weren't that bad, Helen. No. Well, and the other thing is, <laughs> I always used to keep a pint of Cossack in the freezer and a couple of Schlitz tall boys or whatever in the fridge for the hair of the dog the next day. And that's what I couldn't keep down that next morning. I tried, but I couldn't keep it down. So I had reached the end. So there's the powerlessness and the unmanageability, you know. (laughs) Well, right. You know, like I'm (laughs) laughing because it's not about the drinking the night before. It's about not being able to keep down the drinking the morning after. Really? That was really bad. And then I just remembered your description of bleeding out of every orifice, you know. Yeah. Oh, that is that commonly qualifies as late stage alcoholism. Thank you very much. Yeah. And what does it take for us to to recognize this is me? This is it. I am an addict. I am an alcoholic. I am in trouble. The I love your acronym for God, you know, the gift of desperation. I know the other one, too, because the God thing here's let's backtrack a little bit. Um, I can say this while my parents were away at choir practice, a student from Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary was molesting me. Mm. So here you have somebody studying to be a minister who is sexually abusing a child they're supposed to be entrusted with care of. And the parents are away, you know, doing their choir thing. And so where was God when all that happened? When you look back on that. And then I realized, okay, I've read Rabbi Harold Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, you know, and when he said, I abandoned God, he didn't abandon me, you know, and when he said, you know, when I'm laughing, God's laughing right along with me. And when I'm crying, God's crying too. And so for me, the God thing was tough initially, but then I realized, wait a minute, I heard the acronym G-O-D, group of drunks. That's a power greater than myself. My sponsor said, remember that one? You know, they say, there it is. There's the God thing licked. It takes the argument totally away. Are you willing to turn your will in your life over to the care of a group of sober drunks who know how to do it better than you do? I said, oh, count me in. There it was. Oh, like group of sober drunks. It's God's. <laughs> yeah. God's. God's yeah. <laughs> and also the acronym good orderly direction. That one helped right. me. I right. was like, I just want to learn how to do the right from the wrong, do the next right thing, you know, it, give me all this God stuff. And that reminds me, too, of a, another presentation you used to do at Mercy. It wasn't on Family Day. It was just during one of our psychoeducational groups. 
you would do a whole group on um, the word spiritus and spirituality yes. and breath. And, um, you know, that's about as much of it as I remember, but it was powerful. It was really yeah, Great. spiritus meaning booze because Bill uh, Bill Wilson and Carl Jung, who was very well known back in that day, wrote a letter back to him, said, we use the same thing for spirit or breath or for, you know, spirituality as we do for the depraving poison of alcohol. It's, you know, 100% distilled grain neutral spirits, you know. There's evil spirits in them, their bottles there, folks, you know, <laughs> carry nation and that whole thing about the, you know, the abstinence movement and all of that other stuff, the temperance movement. But, but there it is. It's like, and Carl Jung said, the helpful equation therefore is spiritus contra spiritum, meaning alcohol working against the spirit. And so there it is. Yeah. I, I want to share with you um, outside of the podcast. Uh, uh, it was recorded on Zoom, a sermon that I did for my church about, um, you know, but the listeners don't. I'm very have been very involved for the last 25 years with the Swedenborgian church. And uh, is it still on Stevens Avenue? Yes. Yeah. And Emanuel Swedenborg, um, you know, Carl Jung, there are all these connections with 12 step recovery and Emanuel Swedenborg. So this year at the church, we've been doing the, you know, Swedenborg related to Buddhism or Swedenborg and the um, Mason or Swedenborg and I did Swedenborg and the 12 steps. So um, yeah. I have a, a zoom recording of that. I'll send over to you because I think. Oh, that's cool. I, I really look forward to seeing that. Cause the other thing too, is I remember Thich Nhat Han did a book called coming home, Jesus and Buddha as brothers, you know, which was just wonderful. You know, he's so the interconnectedness of everything is the thing that I'm so much more, aware of now that you know there's a woman that i i trained in this special form of therapy called process therapy at a place called shalom mountain retreat and study center and it was a combination of 12-step um jungian mysticism um the stuff around greek mythology using joseph campbell david and deanna peterson's attachment disorder stuff from university of western ontario um, Stuart Black stuff from uh, the Institute of Core Energetics in New York City. I mean, it was a combination of all of this stuff to help get to the trauma. And, um, and w- w- one of the facilitators of that in the advanced training, we went down to New Haven instead of to New York State for the advanced training, a woman named Carol Judd, because her father had founded Shalom Mountain. Uh, retreat and study center and here was carol down in new haven and she had already had the training out the wazoo and, and trained a whole bunch of other people but the the thing that she would always greet us with in her email is i we one you know is that we are all interconnected we are all one we are all part of the whole and you know as long as hopefully we can see that that's where the piece around compassion comes in that's where the piece around tolerance comes in that's where the piece around agape comes in it's all of that stuff 
and and how 12 steps can get us to that place having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs you know so it's all intertwined and interconnected and even bill wilson said you know AA is not the only way you know there's more than one way to get to, to this stuff you know and so whatever way works for you good on you mate you know as long as it's getting you in that direction so what are some of the greatest challenges in sobriety That's a good one. I would say, well, one of them, which I, I love is another, I'll refer back to Bill Wilson in 1958, when he was 23 years sober, he wrote a piece for the AA grapevine called The Next Frontier, Emotional Sobriety. And he talked about what he called absolute dependencies, which today we commonly call codependency, which by the way, is another word for saying, I have some serious control issues, meaning I have attachment to outcomes. <laughs> And um, here he was saying, how come as a co-founder of AA, I get my knickers in a knot because one of the people that I sponsor or work with goes out and drinks. You know, he says, until I get reminded by a few friends of mine in AA, Bill, you're not that powerful. <laughs> you know, and look at the newcomer. If the guy goes out and drinks or the gal goes out and drinks, on to the next, who can I help? You know, so that emotional sobriety is part of it too, because you know, I also work occasionally with people who are domestic violence offenders, and those people have anger management issues. And I think there's a VA group called Strength at Home, which helps people work with that. Um, there's some other ways to get to it. There are other offender groups, but it's about emotional management um, and emotional intelligence and awareness to say, I'm not going to get ruled by this stuff and react like that instantaneously to where I appear out of control to other people, or I actually do get out of control. It's more about, whoa, let me take a deep breath. Cause right now I want to throttle that person in front of me, but <clears throat> that's not about that person. That's about me and about my processing of what I've just witnessed or heard or seen. And does it trigger some of my old trauma? And am I coming from that place instead of saying, wait a minute, right here, right now, I'm noticing that I'm getting a little angry, but, or a lot angry. And what I need to do is take a few deep breaths, calm down, do some energy tapping or whatever other coping mechanism I can use on that to come back into the present. I mean, I remember a supervisor of ours, Tom, who was just a wonderful guy, Tom Allen, who said to me, Howland, you, you are doing what I would commonly call lateral violence with some of your teammates. And I don't like it. And uh, he said, the lateral violence is verbal. Thank God it's not physical. But, you know, you take people out occasionally with some of your, you know, irritations. And so, and then you apologize. He says, but that's not making amends. Amends means to change. So I want you to develop a plan on how you're going to be less irritating with your, or irritated um, by your colleagues. And so that you can stop doing that. So, and I want that plan on my desk next week. <laughs> and what a wonderful thing to say, making amends, amend means to change. So you have to change your behavior if you want to be more of a teammate with these other people. So 
it he he really helped me focus on that. Yeah. And so did David Jordan. The two of them said, okay, come on, let's be more mindful. What's going on with you? What's that about? It's not about the current person. It's some old stuff. And so how are you managing that? And in sobriety, that's something that I had to need, had to learn. And it, it was really hard for me. It was one of my prime struggles. So, you know, you remind me of someone again, back at the center, one of our clients, um, I was asking in a group, you know, what is the most challenging part of recovery? And, and she said, well, I think the most challenging thing, the best thing about recovery is that I can feel my emotions. And the most challenging thing about recovery is that I feel my emotions. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. So it's the best yeah. and the best all at the same time. Yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah. Are you, are you still as devoted as involved in music as you were when uh, we were working together? Is that shifted, yeah. changed as? I'm still involved with it. I play in a band called misspent youth and we, <laughs> That's a great um, title. <laughs> cause it was <laughs> confessions here, you know, I mean, what's the name of this podcast series called, you know, cause yeah. I've been every one of those things at some point in my life, you know, I've, I've engaged in some of those behaviors. So anyway, um, but, the, the music is really important. My mom was the one who turned me on to it. She was a concert pianist uh, who was that far from being professional. Um, and my dad sang. And so I got that blessing of having two music parents and took guitar lessons when I was about seven or eight until they got a little too expensive. And then I started playing by ear. And um, I've been playing ever since. And it's a thrill. It's still me. a thrill. It's <laughs> still a thrill. And we gig around locally. Um, just finished a gig in Old Orchard Beach last Friday night. And um, we've also played at the porthole on the waterfront. That's coming up pretty soon. So look for misspent you folks on Facebook. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll put a shout out for that for sure. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. Misspent Youth. What a great title. I might title this episode of the of the podcast, Miss Ben Youth. <laughs> it's great. It's really great. I confess it was. <laughs> I'm amazed I graduated from high school, let alone, you know, able to get into a master's program eventually. What's it like to play in a band and be sober? Though that's a, that's a hard thing. You know, I have a lot of clients that are singers, songwriters. Um, most of them have their own bands versus being in a band. Um mm -hmm. You know, I, and it, I, it certainly presents challenges. It does. And there have been a few people that I've done sideman work with or, you know, fill in work with who do have problems with that, with substance use. And it's interesting to watch them gradually deteriorate over the evening um, when they start to get a little slur, their words start to get slurred or they don't hit the high notes the same way they would if they were sober. But what I appreciate about my band is that Nobody drinks or uses any substances during the time that we are playing. And there are some who occasionally afterwards, if they're not driving home, might have a shot of rye whiskey or this or that after the gig is over. Mm -hmm. But nobody smokes cigarettes either, which is a wonderful thing. 
So, um, and I've been away from tobacco. I've been away from alcohol for 40 plus years. I've been away from tobacco for 30. So thank goodness, because I can still breathe and I can still sing, you know? So, um, so that's one of those things to appreciate about those guys in the band is that they want to have their wits about them too, which makes it a really good band to play with because we're all listening to each other and being part of the whole instead of just going, well, I'm going to shine now and I'm going to preen in front of people and this is going to be my gig and the hell with that. It's teamwork. And the, at that point, the synergy occurs. And I love that word because synergy always means that it's greater than the sum of the parts. Right. And it is. You and I share a love for words, period, from from spirits and spiritists to, you know, amends to, yeah, all of it. Well, and I learned a lot from my sister, too, because she was into Richard Letterer, the guy that studies the English language and, you know, and talks about the roots of the words and where they come from. And my sister invents words. And one of the things that I absolutely love about her is that. And one of the, one of the words she came up with, they were having a board of overseers meeting, I think on Squirrel Island or something up in Booth Bay Harbor. And she just kind of let out this kind of snide remark. She says, feels like there's a little too much preposterone in this room right now. <laughs> and I just love that because there's, there's an edge to it, but at the same time, there's some humor in it that can, you can just, I just appreciate that about her. That's one of those things. You know, we've had our ups and downs as siblings, but that's something that I just absolutely love about her is making up these wonderful words. You know, that's something I love about recovery too, is the the quality of the relationships I have with my siblings now is just incredible. Um, And so, so long coming. I mean, my brother who, you know, I co-host this show with very, yeah, I heard about that. You have a, you're, I've never met your brother, Bob, and here you are doing co-hosting with him. That's cool. Yeah. And we, I spent five years not having any communication with my brother at all um, because of our history of violence and abuse. And, you know, it's just remarkable. He's, you know, been sober longer than I have. We we were doing a trailer for the show and said, you know, we have a combined 85 years of sobriety and my brother pipes up and says, yeah, I've got 81. Nancy's got, I mean, 84 and Nancy's got one, you know, I was like, <laughs> but he's got a very wry, wonderful sense of humor. You also reminded me when, uh, when we were working together at mercy, it's a rehab within a hospital or was, um, and, uh, my son at five, you, it was one of the words that he mispronounced that I didn't correct because he would say, mommy works at a hostable. <laughs> hostable, yeah. Hostable was just so cute. Um, yeah. Helen, let's uh, finish up here with uh, one of the, the crazy wild stories, you know, that would be funny uh, if told as a story, but not funny to live. Hmm. A crazy story. Like an escapade, you know, from your using days that. Um, that's a tough one to try to pull right out of my head at the moment. Um, yeah, I got I a think, whole slew of those. <laughs> um, oh, well, there's one I can sort of tell. It's it, And it's part of around the thing of my being a little too whorish, would, I would say. There was, a, there was a woman I was attracted to when I was playing in Colorado. I was living in Boulder, and we were playing this one particular gig in Glenwood Springs, 
at this fabulous club. And um, I really liked one of the cocktail waitresses there and we'd made a connection and we'd been there. This was probably the fourth or fifth time we were back. And she and I were so connected that we decided that we were going to be together that night. And um, then what happened was there was this gorgeous blonde that came up um, before the gig was quite over. And she said, what are you doing after the last set? I said, why? She says, because I want to screw your brains out. <laughs> and I just went, okay. And so I went back and had an episode or two with her, but then came back into the bar and there she was sitting with the rest of the band and everybody was glaring at me like, you know what you did, you know? And it was, I had just hurt her feelings, something awful, you know? And, um, in reaction to that, she ended up sleeping with the drummer right next to me that night. Uh, so there was the payback. But here's the deal. Guess what her name was? Karma. Karma. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> there it oh, is. That is a wonderful way to wrap it up, because not only is it a story about, like you were saying, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. I think I've done all, <laughs> a bit of all of that. <laughs> Um, but also when we were talking about the love of words and then, you, you know, her name was karma. Her yeah. name was karma. Oh, how and many? she's still around and I owe her a serious amends at some point. <laughs> <laughs> if I oh, can get in touch with made her. That amends. <laughs> no, I have to make that amends or I have to write her a letter if I can find her address. Somewhere. You just reminded me of how many in our generation were named, you know, karma, sunflower. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh. All right. Uh, any last um, pearls of wisdom for our listeners, something you um, would suggest or ways in which they would find you if they're in Maine and looking for a therapist? Well, they can find me at a place called Stony Creek Care um, in West Falmouth. Um, I was recruited by a former intern of ours um, from Mercy who works there now. His name is Obi Philbrook, and he's um, he's doing quite well there now and uh, has a load of clients. And uh, so he told me about this place and they uh, told he told them my history and they said, well, why don't you come work for us? And you can talk to folks about addiction. We can make some referrals to you. Um, so that's a wonderful thing to be able to work. And it's literally down the road from my mom's old house, West Falmouth Corner. So it's kind of weird being back in that neighborhood you know, right near mom's old house, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, the other thing I wanted to leave folks with is I used to play a song by Jude Johnstone, who's a main songwriter, by the way. And um, Bonnie Raitt covered it, but uh, the lyrics are powerful. And I'd give this to people who have, who are family members who have someone or loved one who's struggling with addiction. It's called wounded heart. And I'll just recite the lyrics because it's fairly short. Wounded heart, I cannot save you from yourself. Though I wanted to be brave, it never helps. Because your trouble's like a flood rushing through your veins. No amount of love's enough to end the pain. Tenderness and time can heal a right gone wrong, but the anger that you feel goes on and on. And it's not enough to know that I love you still. So I'll take my heart and go, for I've had my fill. If you listen, 
You can hear the angels' wings up above our heads so near they're hovering, waiting to reach out for love when it falls apart, when it cannot rise above a wounded heart, when it cannot rise above a wounded heart. Thank you, Helen. I'd love to also put in the show notes um, a link to hear the song. Sure. All you have to do is Google Jude, J-U-D-E, John Stone. The last name is spelled just like John, J-O-H-N, Stone, all one word. And the title of the song is Wounded Heart. Right. And you can hear her playing it on the keyboards because she's a keyboard player. Um, and, um, and Bonnie does it kind of as a solo with somebody accompanying her. She doesn't play the guitar on it. So she just stands there and sings it. <laughs> just like Bonnie Ray can. She yeah. just delivers. You know? <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for the effort to do that. And, and just for being here with me today, it's been such a great pleasure to talk to you again. It's been so it's been long. Good to see you. Thank you so much for even considering me. Um, okay. I'm glad to be a part of this and um, it was wonderful to see you again and great to talk with you. Great. Thank you. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 